Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books in Israel Studies podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, I am honored and blessed to be in dialogue with Randy Grigsby. He is the author of several works on Jewish subjects, mainly the Holocaust and the 1948 Israeli War of Independence. It is my hallowed honor to engage in a dialogue with him today regarding his new book, a Train to Palestine, the Tehran Children, Anders Army, and their Escape from Stalin's Siberia, 1939 to 1943, published in London by Valentine Mitchell, 2020. Randy, it's an honor to be in dialogue with you today. Thank you for having me, Ori. Really appreciate it. Thank you. I'm sincerely grateful. To begin, can you kindly tell us about yourself? Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life inspired your interest in this book? I was uh, I was born on a farm in North Louisiana, which is about as far from Israel, I guess, as you can can be. But I was uh, worked on the farm. I worked in the oil field. I finally, decided to go to college at Louisiana Tech. And uh, when I graduated, I was going to go back. I was going to pay off my student loan and go back. And my goal in life was to teach at the university level, history or Southern literature, which I loved. Uh, but, you know, as, as you know, the world takes its own turn sometimes. And in my job, I, I veered into sales and I found out it was something I really liked. Never thought about being a salesman. Um, I liked it. I was, I was good at it. So I stayed with it. Then I met my wife, Joyce, and we still live in Shreveport. And then when you have a family of daughter and grandchildren and son-in-law, and then you're in, you know, life has started and it's, you, you're on that path. Uh, I retired in 2011 from my main job of selling, stayed with that one company in medical sales all those years. And my wife wanted to go to Israel. Um, and she always talked about it. So when I retired, I bought her a Christmas uh, gift of a ticket to Israel when she opened it up that morning, Ari, she said, um, 
and you're going to go too. And I said, no, I'm not going to go. I, I've mm-hmm. traveled for a living. I, I stayed in a car and a airplane all my life traveling to be in sales. So you go. Well, the pastor of the church talked to me uh, several days later, and he said, you know, I really believe if you go with us that God will have a gift for you. So I thought, well, that's, you know, it's something you have to really think about when, when a pastor tells you that. But I still wasn't going to go, Ari. I still wasn't going to go. And so um, I told them, I'm not going. You guys go ahead. I'm staying here. Final answer, not going. So on the way to Israel, <laughs> I read a book, Martin Gilbert's book on the history of Israel on the plane. The trip I wasn't going to take. I was on the trip reading Martin Gilbert's book. Begin to read about Israel before we went. This was 2014. And when we landed, my wife said, I feel like I'm home. So that just kind of set the tone for the for the whole trip. We had a great trip. We followed the normal pattern of, you know, up the seacoast, up to the Galilee area, down to the Dead Sea. Saw a lot of interesting things. I saw things I had been reading in Martin Gilbert's book on the way over, and I was continually reading it. In Jerusalem, though, the first night, we were supposed to go to the Yad Vashem the next day. And I had a dream about the Tehran children, which is in the title of the book. And we'll explain a little later exactly what the Tehran children are. But I read one paragraph in a book years ago about the Tehran children being in Tehran. So when we went to the Yad Vashem, we had this real nice little French lady who was a Holocaust survivor herself. She gave the tours. And I asked her, do you have anything on the Tehran children? And she seemed really excited because the Tehran children's story is not known outside of Israel very well. So for an American to know this, she was kind of excited about it. And I told her I knew a little bit. Well, I told her I wanted, I felt like I wanted to write a book on if I could find a Tehran child. But what are the odds? You know, this is 1943. There was only 900 to 1,000 of them. What are the odds of finding a Tehran child? She gave me a name, a lady that taught there in Israel. And when I got back to America, a week later, I sent an email to Rudy. And I said, do you know where I can find a Tehran child in America? She said, uh, try Joe Rosenbaum in Los Angeles. I sent him an email couple of weeks goes by, I don't hear anything. And I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, World War II veterans I knew and I interviewed and now Holocaust survivors, maybe they don't want to talk about it. Maybe they just rather keep that to themselves. And I certainly understood. So I thought, well, this was a great idea, but it's not going to pan out. Well, about another week later, I get up one morning, start my computer. There's an email from Joe Rosenbaum. And that's exactly the way he started it. I am a Tehran child, and I'm ready to tell my story. So now I've got my Tehran child, and um, we started very slow. We talked a couple of times, and then we set up a series of meetings. And those those interviews actually became over 40 hours of interviews. We did the last interview once the book was almost done. We flew to Los Angeles and did the last interview in person with Joe and his wife, Rena. And we've since become very good friends. Joe now is very sick, so we don't get to talk to him, but Rena is now part of family. And that's how the Tehran children began. 
and then we went back the next year, 2015, and went to Amsterdam, went to Auschwitz, came back, went over to uh, Israel and continued another nine-day tour. So those two years brought me up to what I had known all my life as an event in World War II, the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. Now I had the foundation to write about the Shoah, the Holocaust, what what happened during that time and what why Joe and his family were driven out of Germany when he was eight years old. What are the primary themes in this book? What message does this book convey? Well, given you know, you give that a lot of thought when you're writing something over three and a half to four years. What am I trying to tell the reader here? And basically, Joe's book comes down to human the human will to be so strong to survive. That's an, that was an amazing thing. You know, I, I read all these books on the Holocaust, and of course we know 1.5 million children were murdered in Europe in the killing camps. Mm-hmm. Uh, the will to survive in that type of environment, and also that wherever there's darkness, and there certainly was in Hitler's Europe, wherever there's darkness, there always seemed to be a light that came in against that darkness and you read about people who helped the Jewish refugees survive, helped them escape, uh, took a risk at death themselves if they were caught even giving a glass of water to a Jewish person. And in Siberia where there was really not much to gain to help the Jewish people in an isolated, isolated situation like that, which they'll read in the book that people certainly did and that the Jewish commander General Andrews that we'll talk about later, he took a great risk in taking the Jewish refugees out of Poland with him. So I think that's the two main things. But the main thing that got me was the the, the human will to survive and how one person fights with everything and then another person in the same situation would finally give up. And I've tried real hard to understand that. What would you like listeners to get out of our dialogue today? Um, that it's important that we don't. Um, it's important that we don't take for granted that everyone believes or understands or knows, like we do from our from our reading and our writing. Um, I'm amazed at how many people. You know, I, I know when Eisenhower. General Eisenhower toured the camps. He made the statement, bring in all the photographers and the journalists. I want nobody to say this never happened. But you and I live, and the readers, we live in a world where there are people that don't believe it happened. And if it did, it wasn't at the degree. The disbelief of, of the Holocaust, this is, to me, this is an educational tool. I would love to get into to schools with Joe's book. And we've, we've done some talks in schools. But to teach people that this happened, the cruelty of it, and it should, never should really happen again. But there's a vacuum out there that, you know, people that are listening to your, your, your telecast, people that are going to read the books, they think like we do. But there's a large amount of people that really doubt a lot of this happened. And I, that just it's incredible to me with the documentation we have, the photographs, the films, the testimonies. How could anybody doubt? So I hope that's not being too dramatic, but I would love for this book, the message to be that people read this book and then use it as educational 
matter with children or with relatives and so on. What does your book teach us about the history of the yeshuv? Um, the yeshuv? I'm sorry. I didn't. I'm sorry. I didn't hear you. Oh, what does your book teach us about the history of the yeshuv? Oh, yeah. Okay. The World War. Yes. Well, there again, I made a, a note here. Um, the, the story of the Tehran children was not um, well known outside of Israel. Now, to the, to the, to the Jewish community in Israel, they, they were actually at a, at a hero level for a time when they came home. Um, as far as the book itself and the Yushev, it connects in this way. When they were on the train coming into Palestine, at that time, just the year before, a lot of information about the Holocaust had finally come out, and the Jewish community knew what was happening in Europe. And David Ben-Gurion wrote a, a speech called the, the Noxy Valley of Death. There was not a lot of knowledge. People began to think what was going on, but they didn't know for sure. Fast forward one year, the Tehran children on a train coming through Palestine to get to athlete a detention camp, and they became a hero. I think it was for the Jewish community at that time, it was the, it was at least a piece of good news that they needed so badly in the middle of the Second World War that, that people could be rescued from the darkness and they could be successful in, in getting children out of places like that. I just think that that, that piece of good news probably changed the to me, reading, it changed the attitude of the Jewish community in Palestine at that time. What were conditions like in the athletes' detention camp that you just alluded to? Can you explain um, what arrivals would have experienced there? What experiences did the refugees that you depict have at athletes' detention camp? It was, you got to... Think about this. Joe Rosenbaum was eight years old when they were driven out of Cologne, Germany. For an eight-year-old child, for five years, Joe never slept in a bed or had three meals a day. They scraped for food. So this is the mindset he's in. In Tehran, things were no better. But when they get to Palestine, things change immediately. The first thing was when they landed at Port Said in Egypt, the first people they saw were Jewish soldiers with the Star of David patches on their shoulders. They were a group of Jewish soldiers that were fighting with the British in North Africa. And Joe relates in the book that this looked different to him. They were always scared of any soldier with a gun. But these were Jewish soldiers. And they began to they began to think, well, he began to say, well, maybe this is is going to be okay. They were fed well in Egypt, waiting for the train the next morning. When they got to the detention camp, the, 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 the warmth of these ladies that met them and hugged them and immediately gave them food. And Joe said that day that he stuffed his pockets with bread. I ate every piece of bread he could get, he stuffed it in his pockets. Now, they were still somewhat skeptical because that night they hid bread under the beds, thinking someone still could take the food away. That's the life they had lived for five years. They had showers, they had warm beds, they had clean clothes, they had all the food they could eat, and they were treated so kindly by these ladies that worked in the camp. And then here comes Henrietta Zoll, that we'll learn about a little later, of, uh, of Youth Aliyah. And she interviewed each child. So Joe remembered at 
He was then 12 or 13, remember being Henrietta Zell. So this arriving at this camp already it changed their lives totally. Um, and of course, for many of them, that was just the beginning of their healing. Then they had to, you know, they had no homes. They had no homes to go back to. They had no relatives, many of them. So in a way, it was great that they landed there, that they landed in a place where things were just so set up for them. But it was the beginning of a lot of them, their troubles. That wasn't the end of the story for many of them, as such as Joe's. Who was Joe Rosenbaum? Can you tell us about him? Yeah. Joe Rosenbaum was eight years old in Cologne, Germany. His father at that time um, had come to America, and the policy was then you had to have a job to send for your family. So his father, in uh, 1938, this was in the fall of 1938, had come here to look for a job, hadn't found one yet. His older daughter, Inez, was in Belgium, and she was living with her uncle, because that gave one less mouth to feed in Cologne. And of course, uh, Joe and his younger sister and his mother lived in Cologne. So Inez, the older daughter, was in Belgium. So when the German police came in and said, you have uh, to get out of here tonight and go to the train station, then it was Joe, eight years old, younger sister, Nellie, and Mina, the, the wife, that... Uh, when they started their trek out of there, Joe had lived a very, he, he talked when I interviewed him, he, he talked about such a, a, a great childhood that he had. Everyone laughed and they joked, he had a great father. They had a warm childhood the way he described it. So to be thrown out in the road like that and to, uh, was quite, it was shocking for him. The one thing, one of the things I remember writing that just, stayed with me the whole time was that when they left that night, his mother took everything they thought they needed, but only what they could carry. When they left the apartment, she turned and locked the door. And in his, in his eight-year-old child's mind, he's going back home. She locked the door, so we'll be back. Well, it was uh, 60 years later before he saw that apartment again. So that eight-year-old child was his thought was wrong. They stayed on the road for five years. Uh, Joe was the only one that made it to Tehran through the Siberian labor camps. He had family with him, some family with him. So Joe comes back after the war. He comes to America. He suffers a lot with nightmares and dreams. He reconnects with his father and his older sister. That's not what he thought it was going to be. He and his father did not get along. Um, but Joe goes back to Israel, meets Rena, his wife. They come to America in the 60s, and already he becomes a very successful businessman and stays in America uh, and retired early because of, of health conditions. I gave you a five-minute scenario about a great man's life, but he, uh, he stayed here after retirement. They had a home in Israel for a while, and they would travel to Israel every year or so, and, um, and he retired here with beautiful family and um, a, a, a story of success when he should never have even reached Palestine as a child. In addition to Joe, can you tell us about Nellie and Mina? What befell them? What happened to Nellie and Mina? Mina was obviously a very loving mother. She, she, she got them through all of this. They were in Poland when the Germans invaded. 
They were thrown on trains and sent to the continent, to the uh, Siberian work camps. And she was the typical mother in a situation like that. The children came first. And then when they went to the Siberia, you were paid by how much of you, uh, there was a, there was a, a rising that was drawn out of trees. I think it was to make rubber. And that's what this, they worked on. You were paid by how much of that you drained out of a tree. Well, Joe's nine years old. How hard can a nine-year-old child work? So they, basically they lived on maybe two pieces of bread a day. And me and I began to give the food to her children. Uh, and it ended up costing her life. And she, she died and was buried in Siberia. So it's Joe and Nellie that leave with the Polish soldiers once Germany attacks Russia. Stalin releases the Polish prisoners of war and all of the refugees, of which a large number are Jewish. And they start heading down to, they want to get to Tehran because the Polish soldiers were promised if they got to Tehran, they would train them, clothe them, and send them to North Africa to fight with Montgomery's Eighth Army in North Africa's Rommel. Jewish children went along with them. Tashkent was just nothing less than a hellhole. There were too many people. They were overwhelmed. There was there were support groups there, kind of like a Red Cross organization, but they were totally overwhelmed. Where they expected twenty thousand refugees, there were two hundred thousand refugees starving and sick. So. Now you've got Joe and his little daughter on their own, living in a hut, trying to survive. And one morning he wakes up, and during the night, Nellie has died of starvation in her sleep. That is the hardest, obviously, that you can imagine. That was the hardest scene about the book that I wrote. In the beginning, Joe did not talk about it. He just he mentioned it. Um, so I went back and I had read a book called uh, Unbroken by Laura Hillenbrand. And I read an interview by her that she said she, when she came to a spot like this, she began to peel away the onion. That was to take the protagonist and gradually unpeel the story so that they feel comfortable telling it. So that's what I did with Joe. We would go back to it in an interview later and say, now Nellie was in Tashkent and he would tell more. And he would tell more and he would tell more until he finally told the whole story. And we both, we both just broke, but his wife said that was the first time he'd really ever told the whole story. And that first time he'd really ever wept about it. And I, I felt guilty for doing that as a writer. But I also felt that it was, it was a breakthrough for him and that it must've given him some relief to finally release the story out and tell it. It was a hard story to write. And it was a hard story to get that information from Joe, as you can imagine, because all those years, all these years to up until today, he still blames himself for his uh, sister's death. And, and starting, my question to him was, where would you have gotten any more food for you guys to eat? How could you have provided any more food? So um, so then from then, when they left Tashkent, into, crossed over the Caspian Sea into Iran, then Joe was by himself. There was no family with him any longer. Who was Henrietta Zold? Can you tell us about her life and biography? What role does she play in the events that you chronicle? What formative events transformed her? 
into the person she would become as an adult. Henrietta Zoe is, as you know, is the protagonist of my second book. Mm -hmm. As I started working with Joe and writing it and doing research, I kept coming across this name of Henrietta Zoe. Uh, I knew that she had started Hadassah, the, the Jewish women's organization, I think in 1912. I knew some basic information about her because she was a player in the in the story of the Tehran children. But I kept reading about it. I thought, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to research more. So I ordered a couple of biographies that were written in the 40s and the, in the 70s, I believe, to, to have enough information to deal with her. She's probably the most one of the most amazing people I've ever read about. And I, I mean that, what, what she did. She was a daughter of a rabbi in Baltimore, Maryland. She was a very studious person. She writes about uh, her dad, the rabbi, wrote books. He was very, uh, he was an intellectual, a Zionist. Uh, and she, as a five-year-old, she had a little desk made in his office. She, he had built a desk for her, and his five-year-old daughter could sit at her desk and write while he was writing. So she was, she considered herself her father's daughter. She began to, to do some teaching. She worked for the Jewish Publication Society uh, in New York. Uh, she uh, fell in love. It was a lost love, and she had a nervous breakdown. And to try to get over that, her mother decided to take her to Europe to visit friends. And the Publication Society also added a $500 stipend so that they could go to Palestine. This was in 1909. Um, they went, and on their tour outside of Jerusalem, they came across a lot of children that were very sick. You know, in 1909, medical facilities and clinics were almost non-existent in Palestine. Palestine was still a very undeveloped country in so many ways. And they saw these children with diseased eyes, with flies caked in their eyes from diseases. And her mother, who knew about the Bible study she was having, the Bible study that ended up being Hadassah, turned to Henrietta and said, this is what you should be doing. Your purpose is in Palestine. It's amazing how one comment from a mother or any person can define a person's life from then on but that one comment by her mother put palestine in her she went back she formed hadassah in uh 1912 um, in 1920 they sent two nurses to, to start medical facilities there i'm sorry shortly after 1912 but in 1920 henrietta went for the first time to Palestine to check on all the, how the medical development was going and everything. She was going to stay for two years. That was 1920. And she spent the rest of her life in Palestine. She dedicated her life to the Holy Land and to development of the Jewish community there. And of course, if you go, you see the big, beautiful Hadassah hospitals on Mount Scopus, and you see all the medical facilities around the land. And that's the work that I Adasa does. Where she comes into to, um, Joe's story is that <clears throat> when they get to Tehran, things are still not good. They separate the Jewish children from the Polish children. The Polish children are sent to an abandoned air base, and they're fed, clothed, have shelter. The Jewish children were put in another camp, very little food, no medicine. The hospital was a tent. 
And Henrietta Zoe was at that time was running a, a, a new de department of the Jewish um, agency that was called Youth Aliyah, and it was to get children out of Europe. Well, now you've got a group of Jewish children that have made it as far as Tehran, and they're stranded. Uh, the Iranians would not let them travel overland. And of course, the British and the Americans, this is the politics of war. They didn't want to offend anyone because they needed the oil to drive the tanks in North Africa and so on. So America declined. They were At one time, they were going to airlift them out, and that was canceled. And then the British were going to help, and that was canceled. So Henrietta Zold finds out about it. She sends Sephora Sharat. Uh, to investigate the situation, she, Sherat immediately sends a telegram back to Henrietta. If we don't get them out of Tehran, they're going to perish. So Henrietta, who is a very headstrong person, a, a very let's get things done type person, she contacted Hadassah uh, delegates in Washington, D.C., and it was the Hadassah delegates who negotiated with the British embassy to provide transportation to get the Tehran children out of Tehran into Palestine. So that's where I came in to Henrietta. Henrietta lived until 1945. She saw the end of the war. She didn't see the new Jewish state established yet, but she lived until 1945. And up until the last, she was still working 15-hour days in her 80s trying to get Jewish children out of Europe before it was too late. How? Have the Tehran children been remembered in film art and collective memory in the decades after World War II? Yeah, good question. And and they did. There were books about uh, the Tehran children. Let me let me look on my notes and I'll give you a couple because these were excellent books. Um, Escape from Siberia: A Jewish Child's Odyssey of Survival by Dr. Whiteman. That was published mm -hmm. in 1999. Then the Tehran Operation, the Rescue of the Jewish Children from the Nazis by Devorah Omer, 1991. That was two of my main research books that that, that got me started. Those books are always available. Um, very limited after that. You would read other books about the Holocaust, uh, about World War II, and you would see very little about Tehran children or Henrietta Zoe. Matter of fact, there's one, and I won't name it, but there was one major book on the Holocaust, and Henrietta Zoll is not even referenced in there. So I had to really do a lot of digging on my research. But there are books written before mine 20, 30 years ago that you can read about the Tehran children. Uh, now, there was a reunion in November of 2006 in Israel, and then I think two years later, they went back and met in Germany. To, and so Joe got to return to Cologne. That was the first time he'd been back to Cologne, Germany, in his apartment since 1938. And there was a book that was written called To Be a Tehran Child, and it was publishing published uh, commemorating the reunion of the Tehran children in 2006. In 2008, there was a documentary film that you can, I think it's on YouTube. It's called The Children's Odyssey by Stephen Vogel. So there is some information out there. There's still very little outside of Israel. 
lot of the books that I attempted to use for my research were hidden were, were written in Hebrew, but I was able to find a lot of English stuff. They're remembered not by any major movies, just a documentary, and it is a good movie. Like I say, you can probably pull it up off the internet. There's besides the book I'd written, there are several older books that reference the Tehran children. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Where does the term Tehran children come from? What does the name signify? Can you explain the term to listeners who might be beginner and listeners who might be unfamiliar. It was a term that it was a term that someone in Henrietta Zoll's office, the Youth Aliyah office in Jerusalem in 1943, someone began to refer to them in the communications when they first began to get information that the Jewish children, were, a thousand of them, were trapped in Tehran, that they just simply began to refer to them in communications with Henrietta Zoll, telegraphs, uh, telegrams, letters, any conversation, they began to refer to them as the Tehran children. And that stuck. So from then on, Youth Aliak always referred to Tehran children because that's where they were located, um, outside of, an, uh, of a, an air base that was no longer being used. And it was where they were, the non-Jewish people were being housed. And in the, in the, like I mentioned before, the Jewish children were in another camp altogether. What new information does your book convey regarding David Ben-Gurion? Um, David Ben-Gurion, I, I mentioned in there when he met, he, he visited a um, displacement, person, a displacement persons camp in 1945 when he saw that... Um, how the, the Jewish people that were being liberated out of the camps and then brought into the DP camps, how Zionism, he saw that Zionism was still alive. And of course, by that time, Ben Gurion had already started laying the foundations for the establishing uh, the state of Israel as soon as the British mandate ended. He also knew that. He knew that the mandate would end because England had fought two wars in in less than 30 in 30 years so they were drained of blood and treasure and the mandate wasn't working very well anyway and you know they were trying to um they were trying to govern palestine and by that time palestine had become a very conflicted place the most interesting thing to me about ben Gurion is that he was a great he understood history and that in 1933 in munich way back he uh at a train stop, he went in and bought Mein Kampf, with his, which, of course, was Hitler's book, My Struggle. As far as I've been able to find in my research, he was the only Zionist that read Mein Kampf. The Ben-Gurion, he lived under the, the mantra of know your enemy. He read Mein Kampf, and he understood what was going to happen. Or he, I think he understood a, a lot of about what was going to happen, where the Holocaust caught a lot of people by surprise later on. I think Ben-Gurion knew where the world was headed because it was, I mean, it was spelled out in Mein Kampf. Hitler told everything. And I think 
at that time, Ben-Gurion began to, to, to set his goals in that way, which brought him to the displaced persons camps in, at the end of the war in 1945. Then he knew that everything that he had understood about history had taken place. And it soon, he said this, that there is a, is a Jewish legend that there are times when windows of history will open and opportunity will present itself. And he believed that during the whole time from 1933 to the end of the war. Ben-Gurion is, a, a, for a person who had not read much about him, Ben-Gurion is a very complex person and hard to understand. But I know this, once he sets his mind on something to accomplish it, he was very bullish about never wavering to accomplish that goal. Can you comment on the interpersonal relationship between David Ben-Gurion and Henrietta Zold? What did they think of one another publicly and privately? How did they get along with each other? Ben-Gurion and Zold got along. They were friends. He would call them friends. They got along publicly, but also they got, they got along in personal relationship because when Henrietta Zold came back to Germany, I mean, to a Palestine to take over Youth Aliyah to get the children out of Germany. At first, she read what they wanted to accomplish, and she said, this won't work. It's too big of a plan. We're already strapped for money, for funds, and so on. So the Youth Aliyah, which ended up rescuing 20,000 children out of Hitler's Europe, Zoll at first didn't buy off on it. She said, this is just, we don't have the money and everything. Ben-Gurion went to her personally, and said, if not you, who is going to do this? That's what kind of turned Henrietta's mind to stop and think that we'll, we'll give this a try and we'll see how many people. In public, he said, it's on the back of my book that Ben-Gurion called her the greatest Jewish woman in over 400 years. So they thought a lot of each other publicly. They thought of each a lot in private. They were both two-state solution people originally. Uh, uh, up until 1937, when a lot of the, the rioting and everything in Palestine began to change people's mind, they tended to think alike. Ben-Gurion was, of course, he knew it was going to take a war for the Jewish state to be established. Henrietta was more of a pacifist. So if there's any disagreement they had, it would have been that. But it would not have been a strong disagreement, I don't believe, Um if Henrietta had lived past 1945 into 48, she would have probably agreed with him on how the, the state of Israel was founded. Can you say more about David Ben-Gurion's visit to Bergen-Belsen concentration camp in October 1945 and to the Zeilsheim detention camp outside of Frankfurt on October 19th, 1945? He tried to keep this low, he tried to really keep this low key, his visits to the point where everyone, when he was at the last camp, at Bergen-Belsen, he got a tour. He saw the, the gallows and the gas chambers and all the evidence. Um, that's, I, that's when he made the comment that for the people here that he gave an oath, that the only way that we'll ever be safe for sure and this won't happen again is when we have our own nation. That's where he made that comment at Bergen-Belsen while on tour with the gallows and all the, the instruments of of death that the Germans had there. The later camp that he was at, he actually stayed in the car not to be recognized. He wanted to low-key the visit. He just wanted to see what the, the mindset of the Jewish 
refugees were that had been taken just months ago or weeks ago from healing camps, someone recognized him and they brought him out and they started cheering him and he ended up going into an auditorium there on the grounds and he gave a speech and Ben Gurion is this tough, tough old guy, you know, just straightforward. He started weeping when he saw what he saw. And in his diary, he said he knew then that the fires of Zionism were alive and that what they were going to, to, to do would work because of Zionism being alive. Many people believe that the, the Jewish people coming out of the camps were defeated and beaten. And he saw absolutely different that morning when he was at the last camp. So those two visits were enough to just convince him to push, to go forward with everything he had planned. He knew the opportunity, that window of history opening that I referred to back. He knew at some point it would. It would be three years later, but he knew. He didn't know then, but he knew at some point it would open up and the opportunity to change history would be there. Who was General Vladislav Anders? What role does he play in the events that you narrate? Can you tell us about his biography and historical legacy? What were the formative events in his life? Yes. Anders ended up being a hero of mine. I, I think every person that researches comes up with characters they like and then characters that they just write about. Anders um, became almost a hero to me and that I got his autobiography. I got a copy of his autobiography, an army in exile. And Anders was on the front lines when Germany invaded Poland in September of 1939. Uh, he was in the, he was right in front of the mass of German army and they fought back. And of course it was, it was brutal because the Germans were, they had them outnumbered Polish, you know, they still had the cavalry with horses and, they were going against German tanks. So the odds of them winning, but his job was to slow the German advance down. Something I didn't know is that the Polish army was successful in some ways of slowing parts of the German advance down when most of history just makes them, you know, that they just literally just were crushed, which they were at the end, but there were moments when they actually retook some positions to slow the German advance. By this time, they're beaten, though, and so Anders is given command of all the remaining forces there in front of the German army. They begin to try to retreat out of Romania, uh, over into Romania, and, and they're cut off, and he's, he's captured, and they're sent to prison in uh, Moscow, which would probably end up being death for him. The soldiers were sent to Siberia, close to the areas where Joe Rosenbaum and the Jewish refugees were in the Siberian camps. But there in Russia, Anders began to think that this is the end. You know, he began to say, you know, this is my fate. I'll either be a firing squad or I'll die here in this prison, which is hard for a soldier. He couldn't fight back. But Hitler changed all that. He had Operation Barbarossa. He, he betrayed his ally, which Russia was at that time, and invaded Russia. And when he did, then Stalin was approached by Churchill and the Polish army of uh, government in exile to free their uh, soldiers that they would fight. Now, everyone agreed that the Polish soldiers weren't going to fight with the Russians. There was way too much 
bad blood there. But Churchill convinced Stalin, if you release Polish POWs, we'll bring them to uh, North Africa and they'll fight with, with uh, the British army there. So they began to release them. And that is where Anders was released from prison. He was made in charge of the 60,000 Polish soldiers that were released from the prisoner of war camps in Siberia. Anders was in charge. This is where he gains his upstanding position as a character in this book. He is told by the Polish army and by the Polish government in exile in London, do not take the 10,000 refugees with you. So he does. Basically, he disobeys a direct order. He breaks. So if it weren't for General Anders, we wouldn't be writing a book on Joe Rosenbaum. Joe Rosenbaum would have died in Siberia. So, and of course, there was a lot of anti-Semitism in the Polish army because you have to understand the Polish soldiers that were fighting the Germans saw some parts of the Jewish community welcome the Soviets when they came in, thinking the Soviets were stopping the Germans. In other words, they were thinking the lesser of two evils, which was wrong later, but we're in the midst of war here, the fog of war. But the Polish soldiers saw that, so they had kind of a, a strong feeling against the Jewish people in Poland. So that's why there was a lot of times that the Jewish children on this, on this journey into Iran were treated so badly because of that kind of a mindset. Anders takes the army to Tehran. He leaves Tehran. Joe Rosenbaum and the children stay in Tehran. Anders takes the army to Palestine and trains them and then goes and fights in um, North Africa. He was at the famed Battle of Monte Cassino in Italy on the mountains. When no one else could take that German fortress, Polish soldiers took it. They fought at a higher level, I believe, because they were fighting for something. They were fighting to get their land back. But now Anders' life did not, Anders' life ended with betrayal in that they actually were, had already made a deal with the Soviet Union that they would get Russia when Germany surrendered. So all of this fighting that Anders was doing was all for naught. Matter of fact, the Polish army and General Anders um, did not get to participate in the victory parade in London shortly after the war, which Anders never really forgave the Allies for that. And he lived in a, a good long... But like, like I say, Ari, this man made some decisions that would have been hard to make in the midst of war, but it saved a lot of lives. And he said years later, when he had retired, he would still get letters from people from Palestine and then later Israel thanking him that his their relatives made it home and were alive because of him. So that gave him a lot of justification in his heart. Who was Hans Weith? Why is he notable? What role did he play in the events that you document? Hans was a German, a Jewish German banker who went to Palestine in uh, the 30s. At that time, Youth Aliyah, had, they, they were in a bigger office. They were expanding. They were getting kids out of Europe. And Hans had gone uh, to be an assistant with Henrietta for several years. But they had a great relationship. Henrietta, I think, I think she liked having a strong 
male figure in the youth aliyah office. You know, most of it, most of it were women. The Hadassah organization was mostly women. And then here's Hans, this handsome young banker comes in and he's Henrietta's right-hand man, so to speak. I think she liked it. They had a good, great relationship. And Hans knew how, how to handle Henrietta in her moments because she was a very tough person to deal with when things were not going right. She just could not stand things. Not She couldn't stand any chaos or things not being, um, being done correctly. He drove her. She began to tour as the number of children increased in Palestine. She would travel to, to these camps, to the kibbutz where the children were being housed. And she would visit those sites and Heinz would drive her and, and help her. By this time, she's in her late seventies. She's getting a little less stable. And he made sure that she would get to places correctly and so on. When Henrietta died in 1945, Hans became one of the leaders of Youth Aliyah. And he had a tragic death in that they had gone on a tour uh, in the 40s. And they were attacked by, I think, Arab irregulars along a, a road. And he got out and and pulled his pistol and they started shooting and he was shot and killed on the side of the road there on the road back to Jerusalem. But he was one of Henrietta's uh, characters that she liked to write about to his, to her sisters. What was the sikorsky maisky agreement? Well, we, we just covered a good bit of that. That was the agreement that, um, that the Polish soldiers after the German invasion, Operation Barbarossa, that was the organization that put together in July of 1941 that the Polish so, uh, prisoners of war would be freed by the Soviets to be released to the British Army. That's the agreement. Uh, Terensky was prime minister of Poland's government in exile in London at that time. So that was simply the agreement of the situation we talked about a moment ago mm -hmm. about how Polish soldiers came to be released. Can you compare and contrast the experiences of Jewish and non-Jewish Polish refugees during the events that you document? Yeah, we touched on that briefly, but I'll go into it a little bit more in that Joe, Joe talked to me a lot about that, in that um, because of the anti-Semitism in the, in the Polish army, not in the Polish army command itself, but in the Polish rank and file, there seemed to be um, because of the way things played out in 1939 when the Soviets came in and a lot of the townspeople looked as Soviets as liberators and rightfully so they'd heard, they knew what was going on under German control. So the Soviet control had to be better. And it turned out it wasn't, but who would have, who would have been able to foresee that situation that it was. Um, but just for an example in the Caspian sea, the non-Jewish children were sent to an army base on the Caspian Sea, and they were given, they lived, they were in tents and, and so on. And the opposite happened to the Jewish children. They were left on the banks of the sea, sometimes with no shelter and heat, very little food and very little water. So there was a, they were not treated equally on the, on, on the trip all the way into Tehran and even in Tehran. The only time the Jewish children were treated, in my mind, in my opinion, treated correctly was when they arrived in Palestine. And I think that's what Henrietta Zoll knew. 
that they weren't going to be. Can you comment on the importance and legacy of the Katyn massacre? Why is it relevant to the story that you tell in this book? That is the massacre where the Soviets, um, when once the fight in Poland was over, Stalin ordered the massacre of 15,000 Polish officers, and they were buried secretly in the forest. The Germans actually discovered that later on, and uh, the Soviets tried to blame the Germans for it. So you got two, two, two bad guys trying to blame each other for the massacre, but it was the Soviets that did it, Stalin's orders to do it. Now, for a writer, that, that massacre created a, a sense of, um, of tension in the book because throughout the book, Anders did not know about the um, destiny of his officers until they were in Italy fighting and they were uncovered. So during the book, he's wandering, he sends people to try to understand. So in the book, it creates kind of a sense of, of tension or mystery about what happened to the soldiers. Um, that's when Anders first came to the realization that if the allies were not going to do anything about Stalin, I mean, Stalin is a guy that, let, let's just let's net it out. Stalin is the guy that Churchill and President Roosevelt are dealing with and Stalin had ordered the massacre of 15,000 Polish troops, and it was being sort of just kind of swept under the rug. And of course, the Polish army under Anders was now fighting and giving their lives in Italy for the Allied cause. It created a lot of bad, bad feelings between the Allies when that was exposed. As we bring our dialogue today to a close, can you tell us about where you directed your attention after completing this book? After I, I finished, uh, Joe obviously had the next book, which I thought was a blessing for me because I knew I was going to write the second book on Henrietta Zoll. There was no question about that. And it's, it's especially how it had been uh, so long since uh, there was one book by Joan Dash called Summon to Jerusalem. It was written in the 70s. To me, that was a major book. Now, there are some new ones coming out later, but I knew that Henrietta would be the subject of my second book. So that's when I began immediately on that. And that's that's the one called Labyrinth of Darkness and Light about the rescue of the children from 1933 to 45. Then after that, then after that, I'm working on a book on uh, the 1948 War of Independence, which again, Henrietta kind of led me into that because I did so much research on Ben Gurion and he's he's the driving force in the 48 war and the establishment of, of Jerusalem as a nation. Um, it's about the last three months of the 48 war when they've got an opportunity. They know they now have an opportunity to win. They have to take the Negev desert and they now know that they can win this war and be a state and have an army and a boundary and be at peace at least for a while. I'm excited to see that forthcoming book on the 1948 war, whenever it's available, whenever it's complete. I wish you the best of luck in your journey of preparing, writing, editing, and, and seeing that worthy and worthwhile project to completion. Thank you, Ori. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. It was my hallowed honored to have this time with you today. Thank you for this masterful project. Thank you for all that you sacrificed to bring it into creation. 
for the benefit of your readers. And thank you for filling in so many gaps in what most of us know about the Tehran children and this very important history in the Holocaust and in the course of World War II. I can hardly thank you enough and can hardly thank you enough on behalf of anonymous readers who you may never meet, but who will benefit tremendously from what you have prepared for us. It's, it's, it's a worthwhile cause for people to know about the founding of Israel and the things that created the 48 war. A lot of heroes in that story too. Thank you. To our listeners, I am your host today on the New Books in Israel Studies podcast, Ari Barbalat. Today, I have been in dialogue with Randy Grigsby, he is the author of academic work on many Jewish subjects, mainly the Holocaust and the 1948 Israeli War of Independence. Randy and I have been in dialogue about his book, A Train to Palestine, The Tehran Children, Anders Army, and Their Escape from Stalin's Siberia, 1939 to 1943 published in london by valentine mitchell 2020